There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Katsabue is a town of small gravel roads, a few bigger paved roads, but lots of little small gravel paths with low buildings, many of them simple sided buildings with steel roofs in different colors. So it's a colorful little outcrop in this corner of the Western Arctic. There's one grocery store, which is really the only store of any size here. It's just so hard to transport stuff here. Oil comes in for the entire year on two barges over the course of the summer. There's no other way to get oil here because in the winter, the sound is unnavigable. It's, it's covered with ice. Kotzebue sits on the edge of northwestern Alaska. It overlooks the Kotzebue Sound, which is part of the Chukchi Sea, which is part of the Arctic Ocean. Between land and sea, there's a wall, barely more than a decade old, to protect the town from increasingly threatening waters. I arrived for a reporting trip this summer, when residents drive up and down the town's handful of streets, enjoying the midnight sun. On a hilltop overlooking Kotzebue, I sat with Bobby Schaefer. Well, yeah, siku, siku means ice. And then you got sikulak, which means new ice. And then also there's fresh ice, and they call that sikulak. But there's a lot of different terms for different conditions of the ice. He's an Inupiat elder and tracks the condition of the sea ice both as a hunter and as part of a research project run by the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I, I think I've been on this thing for four years now uh, as an observer. Um, as I got older, I just felt it was important that... Uh, you know, someone who has the time to look at global warming and sort of relate it to what it means for us up here. For Alaskans like Schaefer, the condition of sea ice affects everything about the way they live. When ships can reach the town in summer, whether there's enough ice to protect against big waves and autumn storms, and crucially when they can hunt. For many Alaskans, hunting is not something they do for sport, but for survival. Schaefer spends much of June out on the sea ice hunting bearded seal. As temperatures rise, though, patterns of ice are changing. You know, for the, in 2018, 2019, there was no ice out there in the Kotzebue Sound. It, uh, the winters were so warm uh, during those years that uh, uh, we never got down to 20 below. And in order for you to freeze uh, salt water, you have to have good cold weather. We didn't have any ice to hunt in, so nobody hunted during 2018 and 2019. But if the cadence of Alaskan life depends on ice, its larger economy depends on something else, too. Oil. Kotzebue, like towns across Alaska, 
needs oil in all sorts of ways. Oil provides the town with heat. ConocoPhillips, an oil company, supports the local food bank. More fundamentally, though, Kotzebue and all of Alaska use oil revenues to fund basic services. Put simply, Alaska is the part of America most threatened by rising temperatures, as well as an old-fashioned petrostate. Can Alaska reconcile the desire to drill with the need to limit climate change? I'm Charlotte Howard, and this is the first of two special episodes of Checks and Balance from The Economist, looking at the future of oil and ice in Alaska. Today, will there be a new oil boom in Alaska? Over the summer, I traveled around Alaska to get a sense of how it is grappling with a dilemma. It's a quandary that, as someone who has spent years reporting on energy and climate, has bugged me too. Alaska sits at the heart of two big, tangled global questions. How to slow the pace of climate change, and where, or whether, to develop oil. Alaska's oil production is in long-term decline. That creates budget headaches, not just for the state's oil economy, but for all of Alaska. Oil companies and their many allies within the state are now pushing for a crude revival. The Biden administration may soon approve a big new project in the Alaskan Arctic, with more likely to follow. Helping that cause, the need to secure oil has become more urgent. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has raised prices and highlighted the risk of depending on enemies for energy. One of those pushing for a resurgence in American drilling is Mike Dunleavy, Alaska's Republican governor. So is Alaska as bad as some people think we are? (laughs) What's the metric of bad? That um, we don't care about the environment, we don't care about our native folks, we just want to slash and burn and make money, and that's all there is to it. Governor Dunleavy was re-elected to his post in November. He's a staunch defender of Alaska's right to develop its resources. I think that there are some that believe that preventing Alaska from developing its resources maintains its pristine beauty, and that for them is a very valuable belief to hang on to. Uh, that they put a price to. And um, I think there's less concern about what do the Alaskans want, and there's more concerns about what we want outside of Alaska. But if the governor sees drilling as a matter of state and national urgency, the need to move away from oil has become more urgent, too. Climate scientists have long urged the world to keep the rise in temperatures within 1.5 degrees Celsius. But that already looks pretty much impossible. The challenge now is to move faster to limit global warming's damage. That problem is particularly acute in Alaska. The Arctic is warming faster than the global average. Sea ice is thawing, Alaska's storms are becoming more violent, 
its wildfires are more expansive and more frequent. Much of the state is undeveloped and looks like it might have done centuries or millennia ago. To me, it looked like a window to the past. But I went to Alaska because it's also a preview of what's to come, as fights over oil intensify and the effects of climate change become more evident. Nowhere more clearly shows the forces working to sustain oil or the costs of failing to give it up. In the White House, President Eisenhower signs the proclamation that makes Alaska's entry into the Union official, nearly 92 years after Lincoln's Secretary of State bought the territory from the Russian Tsar for $7 million. In the years since... Alaska Alaska became a state in 1959. In some ways, it resembles its peers. Anchorage, its biggest city, is like other mid-sized American cities, with office buildings and a neat grid. Anchorage has strip malls, nail salons, and gun stores... Busy intersections have pharmacies as big as churches. But in most ways, Alaska is unique. It was uh, heaven. It was a dream come true. I always dreamed about Alaska. Governor Dunleavy grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, so he has an outside perspective on his adopted home. Tell me, you said you always dreamed of Alaska. What do you mean? Uh, The ability to experience something very dramatically new, be part of, or at least uh, observe folks that think and live differently. Alaska's dramatic, 60 below, one month, six months later, 90 above, sun out all the time, uh, June, dark in December, high winds, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, floods, you name it. It's it's never a dull moment in the state of Alaska. So just an incredibly invigorating place. Alaska is astonishingly extreme. It has just 733,000 residents in an area that's more than twice the size of Texas and larger than France, Germany, and Spain combined. Many residents live in places that are inaccessible by road. And it's bitterly cold. Utgyagvik, the northernmost town in America, frequently reports temperatures of minus 25 degrees Celsius or minus 13 degrees Fahrenheit, Its midwinter night lasts for two months. And the state's beauty is gobsmacking. Alaska's home to North America's highest peak. When you can see it on a clear day in Anchorage, locals say Denali is out. It's the way people elsewhere describe the sun. If Alaska is unusual in its scale and extremities, though, it has something else that sets it apart. Oil. Now the president's signature makes it officially the 49th state. When Alaska became a state, its main appeal to the rest of the Union was its strategic military importance in the Pacific. At the same time, Ike solves one problem created by the added state. He announces the new design of the flag. And across the country, manufacturers go into action. Some oil had been discovered, but not much. In 1923, President Warren Harding created an oil reserve in Alaska, now known as the National Petroleum Reserve, or NPRA. But he didn't know how much crude it contained. Once this vast land belonged to the wild animals. 
Then, in December 1967, drillers struck oil less than 80 miles east of NPRA on the frozen plain of Alaska's North Slope. Now the Arctic wilderness must be shared with a strange new breed that migrates in trucks and airplanes. Further drilling confirmed that this was not just any oil field. It was an enormous one, what oilmen call an elephant. Oilmen and their rigs are part of a massive operation designed to tap some 10 billion barrels of oil locked in a natural reservoir beneath the Arctic tundra. To this day, Prudhoe Bay remains the largest oil field ever discovered in the United States. The question was how to get this oil to market. With America desperate for crude, amid the Arab oil embargo, President Richard Nixon helped accelerate the construction of a giant pipeline. It would cross more than 1,300 kilometers from Prudhoe Bay south to the port of Valdez, so oil could be taken by boat to the lower 48. In 1973, Nixon signed a bill authorizing the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. We want this country to be one where we have all the energy we need to create the jobs and to heat our homes and to light them and to move us along our highways or on our rail beds or whatever the case might be. We want enough energy so that America is not dependent on any other country. But we want this to be a beautiful country. It was a triumph of engineering. Completed in 1977 at a cost of $7.8 billion, it was America's most ambitious engineering project since the moon landings. An oil boom followed. With it came wealth, for oilmen and ordinary Alaskans alike. Even now, Alaskan oil means the state has no income tax or sales tax. Wisely, in 1976, the state legislature created a sovereign wealth fund. This pays every Alaskan an annual dividend. In a blue state, they might call it universal basic income. It also makes investments, so Alaska has money when the oil runs out. The question, though, is when exactly that might be. Alaska's dependence on crude has looked risky for a while. That's in part because of the volatility of oil prices, but also because of the particular concern of oil's impact on Alaska's fragile ecosystems. In the bays and coves of this once pristine wilderness, the black tide continues to come ashore. In 1989, an Exxon tanker crashed in the port of Valdez, spilling more than 250,000 barrels of crude into the pristine waters of the Prince William Sound, home to seals, otters, orca, and more. The oil is everywhere. There's simply no escape. Environmentalists persistently litigate and campaign against more drilling. But Alaska's dependence on crude has also looked risky simply because oil companies have turned their attention elsewhere. America has had an oil rush over the past 20 years. It just hasn't been in Alaska. In the U.S., there's been an incredible boom brought about by fracking. Uh, it's mostly coming from Texas and North Dakota. Uh, we're producing more oil than we have since the early 1970s. It's been a really just remarkable turnaround. Fracking has allowed drillers to extract oil previously deemed unreachable. That's produced an energy abundance, such that in 2015, Barack Obama lifted a ban on exports of American crude oil output has reached new heights. But no such frenzy is gripping Alaska. Production has declined about 80% since the late 1980s. 
Good morning, and welcome to the first oil and gas lease sale for the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Fights over Alaskan oil have long centered on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, a vast area in the northeast of the state that sits between Canada and the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. First bid, Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority. I covered the auction of oil leases in the refuge for The Economist, and on January 6th, 2021, I had the surreal experience of listening to the live stream of that auction at the precise moment when President Trump's supporters were storming the Capitol. Coastal Plain Track 32, the bid is incomplete. But the auction was an anticlimax. No big companies took part. Some small firms did bid, but since then they've all given up their leases. In Prudhoe Bay itself, that huge oil field that kicked off Alaska's boom in the late 1960s, activity has subsided. Yes, oil production continues, pipelines crisscrossing the tundra like etch-a-sketch lines. But the volume of oil flowing through the Trans-Alaska pipeline has slowed. Crude has to be heated so it doesn't get waxy and stick to the pipe's walls. When I visited Prudhoe Bay in June, rigs lay on their side. To me, the rigs looked like toys that had been left behind by some giant toddler who had lost interest. There's a specter of Alaska without oil that haunts this state. Like coal country in Appalachia, but with worse weather. Not surprisingly, politicians and many ordinary Alaskans want to avoid that. I'll be back in a moment to hear more about the case for drilling in Alaska. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For many Alaskans, the need to rejuvenate the state's oil industry is an urgent one. Kara Moriarty is the head of the Alaska Oil and Gas Association. She's the top lobbyist for the industry in this state. And she insists Alaskan energy has a bright future. Because you don't know what price is going to do. You don't know what technology is going to unlock. You don't know what global conflict is going to change the dynamics of supply and demand like we've seen over the last 18 months. But I do know, the one thing we do know, is that the world is going to continue to use oil and gas resources for at least the next 20 to 30 years. And we know that Alaska has a lot of it. So there's a role that we can continue to play as long as the right policies are in place to allow a strong investment climate here. Despite Alaskan oil's many setbacks, that's not empty boosterism. In recent years, companies have started turning west of Prudhoe Bay to NPRA, that vast area President Harding had designated for oil back in the 1920s. Unlike the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and its dud auction, investors see exciting potential for oil in this area. 
Cara Moriarty says that environmentally conscious developers should be looking to drill in the state rather than abandon it. If investors and insurance companies really cared about the environment, they would want to be developing in Alaska versus other places that do not have the same environmental standards because the demand for oil and gas is not going away in the next 20 to 30 years. It's true that oil exploration has become much more advanced since drillers struck oil on the tundra more than 50 years ago. Trucks that are equipped with heavy plates crawl across the tundra, sending seismic waves thousands of feet below. Sensors then collect those echoes and computers analyze their data. In 2017, the oil giant ConocoPhillips announced it had discovered a trove of oil in NPRA. The project it calls Willow is now estimated to hold around 600 million barrels. After years of litigation, Conoco hopes the Biden administration will approve the project. But even then, the fight won't be over. Conoco says there are some 3 billion additional barrels of oil and gas nearby. It's former Governor Sarah Palin who will forever be linked to the phrase, drill, baby, drill. You're right, drill, baby, drill, and mine, baby, mine. But pretty much every major politician in Alaska says the state should be allowed to develop its oil. Willow, the big project ConocoPhillips wants to drill, is supported by the most powerful forces in Alaska. Even though native Alaskans are affected by climate change, the big native-led companies in the state support development. The Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, for instance, is a native conglomerate with $3.9 billion in revenue and is firmly in favor, as is Mary Peltola, the Democrat who is the first Alaska native to be elected to the House of Representatives, as well as Les Gara, the Democrat who challenged Governor Dunleavy, and of course the governor himself. We need energy. If we're going to have the civilization that we have today, that means the medical advances, that means the societal advances. That means, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So energy is key to all of that. And you have to decide where that energy is going to come from, in what form. And there's nothing free. For the corporations, politicians, and ordinary Alaskans who back drilling, the case is clear. The oil is there. Technological advances mean the environmental impact of drilling has been diminished, or at least relatively. And concern about energy security means America has to drill within its borders. Then, of course, there's the reality that Alaska's economy remains deeply dependent on oil. The problem is, Alaska is also feeling the effects of rising temperatures. Can everybody, everybody have a seat, have a seat. Just relax. I, uh, I'm going to be here for a while. That was true even back in 2015, when Barack Obama visited Kotzebue. He was the first sitting president to go to the American Arctic. If we do nothing, temperatures in Alaska are projected to rise between 6 and 12 degrees by the end of the century. That means more melting, more fires, more erosion, more thawing of the permafrost, more warming after that. To a crowd packed into the high school gym, he urged action on climate change. There aren't many other places in America that have to deal with those questions right now, but there will be. And what's happening here is America's wake-up call. It should be the world's wake-up call. Seven years later, 
the effects of climate change are even more obvious. It got so hot that some of the village people from the upper Kobuk had to come down to Kotzebue because it was too hot up there. It was over 100 degrees. Hmm. They felt that they couldn't survive. Bobby Schaefer, whom I visited in Kotzebue, and his fellow Alaskans are already having to adapt to the reality of a warming world. And, uh, so, but at the same year, was we, we had a mass die-off of our salmon. And uh, what happened was that the, during this hot spell, the water in the Kobuk River got so hot that uh, it just got rid of the oxygen. As oil projects in Alaska ramp up, what is their cost? Buckled in, and we are getting ready. Our pilot looks like he could kill a moose with his bare hands and his inspiring confidence. From Kotzebue, I got on a small plane with a group of conservationists and amateur explorers and flew north to camp in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve. Here we go. Here we, go. <laughs> we would pitch our tents on a remote riverbed about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. As Alaska develops its oil, I wanted to understand what might be sacrificed. We'll get to that in the next episode. This episode was written by me and produced by Harriet Noble. Nicola Raufast did the sound design and mixing, and John Shields is our executive producer. If you've enjoyed this, please listen to part two next week. But also please read the essay I wrote about my trip. It's called Land, Oil, and Ice. You'll need a subscription to read that, as well as the brilliant journalism that my colleagues produce. Go to economist.com slash uspod for the best offer. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more from Alaska next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.